All right, brothers and sisters, let's look at God's word together. So if you will, take out a Bible and open with me to Exodus 32. And here in just a moment, we'll begin in verse 15. Exodus 32, 15. As usual, the main text will not be up on the screen behind me. So uh, I would ask you to look at it in a copy of Scripture for yourself. As we'll be referring back to it time and time again, I think you'll get the most out of the sermon if you've got a Bible in front of you opened to our text. Exodus 32, starting in verse 15. Now, in in Peter's second letter in the New Testament, toward the end of that letter, he begins talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, when Jesus will return. And he says that in the last days, scoffers will come, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, Peter says, people will become skeptical that Jesus will actually return. Why? Why will they be skeptical of the return of Christ? Well, because every day of their lives they've woken up, they've gone about their day, and then they've gone to bed, and he hasn't returned. Every day of their lives. And so Peter says that will cause them to think he's not coming. He's not ever coming because every day I've been alive, he hasn't come. Now I can stand up here and tell you in 10 different ways that Jesus could come back at any moment. But if we are honest with ourselves, most of the time we don't live like it. We don't live like he could come back any moment. And I think the reason for that is because we've lived every day of our lives without him having come back. Every day of our lives, no matter how old you are, you've lived every day and he hasn't come back. And when you think about it, it's been almost 2,000 years of days and he hasn't come back. And so we must constantly be reminding one another And we must constantly be letting God's word remind us that Jesus could come back at any moment. Lest we be lulled into thinking, surely he's not coming back today or anytime soon because he hasn't so far. That's what Peter was saying. And in that same text in 2 Peter, Peter warns us against thinking that God is being too slow to fulfill his promises. You remember this part in 2 Peter? That's the part where we, we see that famous passage with the, with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. But he says the Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise. Beware of thinking that, thinking he's too slow, because our definition of slow is so different than his. We are an impatient people. Well, remember what was happening with the Israelites when Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God. What was happening with them? They were getting impatient and thinking, we don't know what's happened to this man, Moses. Maybe he'll never come back. And so they turned away from God and made themselves an idol to worship. Well, in today's text, Moses comes down from the mountain. And we'll see what happens when he does. Exodus 32, starting in verse 15. We're going to read down to verse 29. This is God's word. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose... For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate, from gate to gate, throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. This morning I want to show you three things from this text. We're going to look at first Moses' zeal. Second, Aaron's excuses. And third, Jesus' return. Moses' zeal, Aaron's excuses, and Jesus' return. We start with Moses' zeal. Notice when Moses comes down from the mountain, his zeal for the Lord in this passage. Zeal meaning his fervent desire to see God receive the honor and the glory he deserves. And the way that it works itself out in his passions, his emotions, reacting to what he finds. Now, as Moses comes down the mountain, from being up on the mountain with God, he comes down and he speaks to Joshua. Now, we learn early in the book of Exodus, earlier Exodus 24 to be specific, that Joshua had accompanied Moses up partway to the mountain. He, he kind of went up higher than the rest of the people, but he didn't go all the way up to where Moses was communing with God and receiving the law straight from God's mouth. And so Joshua was up there part of the way. The reason that's important is because Moses comes down and him and Joshua hear the sound. And that, that doesn't make sense unless you know Joshua doesn't know what's happening. Joshua doesn't know what's happening at the foot of the mountain, just like Moses. But Moses knows what the Lord told him. Joshua doesn't know. So they're, they're walking down and Joshua hears this noise from the camp and he says, it's a noise of war. There's war in the camp. But Moses listens a little bit more carefully. And understands, no, wait, it's not war that I hear. It's singing. And they're not singing worship songs. And when they get down from the mountain, Moses sees the idolatry and the reveling in sin, the partying that's going on, and he is hot. His anger burns hot. It says that of him, just like it said of the Lord's anger up earlier in this same chapter, his anger is burning hot. 
Now, he knew when he came down from the mountain, he knew what the people were doing, Moses did, because the Lord told him. But it's one thing to be told by God, it's another to see it. You ever had this happen? You know something objectively, but it's another thing to actually experience it and see it for yourself. And his emotion, his anger, runs hot because he is zealous for the glory of the Lord and the holiness of the Lord's people. Notice what Moses does. Verse 19, the first thing he does after he sees this is he throws the tablets out of his hands. The tablets which contain the Ten Commandments written by God himself. And he breaks them at the foot of the mountain. Now this was a prophetic and symbolic act. Whether or not Moses intended it to be so, this could have been a simple loss of control by Moses. I mean, he breaks the Ten Commandments that God had given him. You think you should not break these things. These are given to you by the Lord. They've got the handwriting of the Lord on them. But Moses breaks them in his anger. But it ends up being a prophetic and symbolic act because the Israelites had received those Ten Commandments. He wasn't coming down to give them the Ten Commandments for the first time. He was coming down with the tablets, probably to place them in the Ark of the Covenant. But these these Israelites had already received the laws. We learn from Exodus 24 again. Moses had earlier come down and given them the rules that God had given him. He passed them on verbally. And the people responded by saying, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. Moses goes back up on the mountain and it's not too long before they've already broken the Ten Commandments. Thrown them aside smashed them to pieces. That's what the Israelites did. Those Ten Commandments start out with the first. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second, you shall not make for yourself any graven image resembling any kind of created thing to worship. And they've already broken the first two of the Ten Commandments blatantly. How quickly they did so. They threw it aside. They smashed God's commandments. And in the same way Moses, much like the prophets that would come later in the Old Testament, doing an object lesson, so to speak, an object prophecy, he smashes the Ten Commandments. But notice what he does next. Look at verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made them drink it. Now, this is a striking image, is it not? He makes them drink it. He makes the Israelites taste the bitter consequences of their idolatry. Moses says, all right, you want a golden calf? You shall have it. And all the bitter pain and nausea and vomiting that comes with it. You see, sometimes God makes us experience the bitter consequences of our sin. Sometimes God causes us to experience the pain that results from walking away from him, that results from putting anything ahead of him, from pursuing things that are against his his will and his commandments. And many times when God does this, it is a grace. It is a blessing. It doesn't seem like that here. But when God allows us to experience the pain and the consequences of our sin, it is his grace And his gift to us, making us taste the nauseating after effects of our sin so that we will learn never to do it again. So that we will learn never to do it again. 
In the 1900s, there was an Anglican bishop in Uganda who came to be known as the Billy Graham of Africa. His name was Festo Kivengiri. And he once wrote of a 45-year-old man who came to faith at that age in his home country of Uganda. The man was a complete pagan up to this point in his life with no knowledge of Christ, but he was converted by the preaching of the Christians there. And after only one month of walking with Christ, when this man would be in a worship service, if he had an impure thought, he would immediately become physically sick and have to leave the meeting to go throw up outside. And it was a gift from the Lord. A gift from the Lord. This extreme sensitivity and nauseating reaction to sin. Oh, that the Lord would give us something similar. Oh, that he would cause us to be so sensitive to sin or to even going down the path of sin that we would have immediate physical reactions. Oh, that God would give us the consequences of our sin in such a way that does not destroy us, but turns us away from ever sinning again. My friends, you might think it's a good thing that after you sin, you don't experience any consequences, but you are deceiving yourself. Perhaps you think yourself lucky that you didn't have to feel the effects of what you did. But I submit to you, it's actually worse and more dangerous when nothing happens. It would be a gift from the Lord to allow us to experience some kind of negative reaction to sin so that we might learn never to do it again. May God graciously give his children his discipline, his corrective discipline. Notice Moses' zeal for the Lord here. It's a wonderful example for us. As we spend more and more time walking with the Lord, and as we grow in holiness, we will begin to love what God loves, but also to hate what God hates. The closer you become to God, the more godly you become, the more you love what God loves and hate what he hates. You love what he loves. You love the people that he loves, that that maybe you didn't love before, or they were harder to love before, and they're becoming easier to love. You you love the, the good in this world that is a result of him and his will that maybe you didn't love before. It becomes easier to have your heart stirred to worship him. I think when, when Bob was up here giving that communion meditation, right? That communion meditation is a very simple presentation of the biblical truth of the gospel. And decades ago, I would have listened to something like that and maybe been distracted, maybe been bored, maybe had my thoughts wondering. And the closer and closer I get to the Lord, the more something like that, very simple, can just lead me into worship. The less it takes for you to worship the Lord, the more you love what he loves. But at the same time, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you hate what he hates. We have to have a godly hatred, or we should have a godly hatred for the things that the Lord hates. Not that we're walking around hating people, but we are hating when the Lord's glory is demeaned, when the Lord is blasphemed. Think about Jesus cleansing the temple in John 2. Right? He's angry at what the temple has become. He hates what they had turned it into. 
It had become a marketplace for buying and selling, for getting rich and swindling people out of money when it was supposed to be a house of prayer. And so what does he do? He makes a whip and he drives those animals out of the temple and he turns over in his anger the tables with money. You get this picture of money flying everywhere because he hates what it's become and he hates the way the Lord is being blasphemed. And the the disciples, when they saw it, immediately realized Jesus was fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, when people blaspheme God, I take it personally. I feel it in my heart. Do we hate to see the Lord blasphemed? Do we hate to see the Lord's glory demeaned? Does it even bother us? The closer you get to the Lord, the more you love what he loves and hate what he hates. And we see the zeal of Moses in this. And it was good, and it was right, and it was righteous. Now, second, we see Aaron's excuses. Moses' zeal, but Aaron's excuses. When Moses was away, he left Aaron in charge, right? Aaron's in charge when Moses is away. Aaron's Moses' second-hand man. And notice Aaron's response when Moses asks him to give an account for what happened. Number one, he blame shifts. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, he blame shifts. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. And that's a lowercase l on Lord. He's just talking to Moses in that way. Moses is his superior from the Lord. But let not my anger of, the Lord burn, of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. You know these people, Moses? These people are so prone to sin. They're so stiff-necked and hard-hearted. I can't do anything about it. You know these people? He's blame-shifting. Notice verse 25, which shows us where the blame really lies. It says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, parentheses, for Aaron had let them break loose, And if you've ever been in a position where you had to manage other employees, you know exactly what that is talking about, right? The people are indeed prone to sin. And without godly leadership, they will fall right into it. That's the message of the book of Joshua. But, or the book of Judges, I should say, I'm sorry. But God has given them leadership. God gave the people leadership. And Aaron, their leader, has led them to turn away from God. They didn't just turn away from God on their own. He led them to it. You see, spiritual leaders are called to a higher standard. Spiritual leaders are called to a higher standard. Let me read to you Hebrews 13, verse 17, which is so often the the one verse that I turn, turn to to help people understand the importance of church membership in the Bible. But Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And what that means is spiritual leaders will give an account to God for those under their spiritual care, for those they have been charged to care for spiritually. And so, for example, if our church walks away from the commands of Scripture, that is first and foremost on the ministers and the elders. First and foremost. Adam, Clay, myself, all of our elders, that's first and foremost on us. And God will not accept the lame excuse 
that Aaron gave. God, you know these people? You know these people? They're, they're prone to sin. They're prone to, to wandering. You know them. We couldn't do anything about it. Will not accept that excuse from his spiritual leaders. And this is not just a word for elders. Husbands, fathers, it's a word for you. Parents, moms too, parents of children, it's a word for you. The same responsibility is given to you for the spiritual direction of your family. Remember Adam and Eve and the first sin. Eve was the first one to take the fruit. But when God came down, what did he say? He said, Adam, where are you? Because God holds the spiritual leaders he has put in place accountable first and foremost. They are held to a higher standard. But what does Aaron do second? Second, he spins the truth. Look at verse 24. He spins the truth. Aaron says, so I I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. This is the all-time lamest excuse for sin in the entire Bible. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. It's like a little child's excuse when they're caught red-handed. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. You catch your kid red-handed, you walk into the living room, and there's marker all over the walls. All over the walls. And then the little toddler looks up at you, and there's marker on his face. And there's marker on his hands. And there's four markers laying right beside him on the carpet with the tops off. And you say, how did the walls get like this? And he says, I don't know. Somebody else must have done it. Right? Yeah, right. Sure. It's the lamest excuse. I mean, verse 4 above in this same chapter, verse 4 explicitly tells us Aaron fashioned the gold into a calf with a graving tool. And now he's telling Moses, out came this calf. I don't know how it happened. Right? And so the question is, how do we respond when we are confronted with our sin? Look at how Aaron responds. How do we respond when we're confronted with sin? Will you blame shift? Will you spin the truth? Or will you do what Aaron should have done? Will you confess your sin with no excuses? Will you take full responsibility? Will you sincerely repent before the Lord? Will you sincerely repent before those whom your sin has affected? This is what God is looking for. God is not looking for perfect people. God is not looking for sinless people. He tells us in Isaiah 66 verse 2 exactly what he is looking for. God says in Isaiah 66 2, This is the one to whom I will look. And who is it? It's the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at God's word. That's what God is looking for. A contrite, humble spirit. Read David's psalm of confession and repentance sometime. Sometime, when you get a chance, read Psalm 51. It's David's psalm of confession and repentance. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had tried to cover it up, including having her husband murdered, After he had tried to keep it from anyone in his inner circle for a long time, we we see almost a year in scripture. And then finally God sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him and to expose his sin. And once that happened, David confessed and repented 
with the heart that the Lord was looking for. And his psalm that he wrote afterward was turned into scripture for all of us to read for all time so that we could have a voice. We could have words to what is going on in our hearts after we sin. Psalm 51. And it shows us how to respond. It's a wonderful model for taking responsibility, for no excuses, for confession before the Lord. Now, finally today, I want you to see in our passage how it points to Jesus' return. Jesus' return. In verses 25 through 29, we come across what can only be described as a shocking scene. Moses stands in the gate of the camp and yells out, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. Whoever's on the Lord's side, meet with me right here. And the Levites show up, it says. And then Moses gives them a charge, and it's a word from the Lord. Notice how Moses says that. It's a word from the Lord. It's not just Moses' idea here. It's not something you can look at and scrutinize and say they shouldn't have done that. No, it's from the Lord. And Moses tells the Levites, put on your swords. For you are about to go throughout the camp and kill your fellow Israelites for what they have done. Those who are not on the Lord's side. Your brothers, your companions, your neighbors. It even says in the last verse, verse 29, Moses says, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of whom? His son, his brother. That's some of the people they had to kill. What in the world do we do with this? Well, first of all, we must note the commitment to the Lord that this would have required. The commitment to the Lord that these men had to have to do this. Now, God is not going to ask you to put a loved one to death. This was a very unique circumstance. So don't live in fear that God is going to ask you to do this. But Jesus does say to us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, that's a hard word, but it's Jesus' requirement for following him. He has to be the most important in our hearts and our minds. Our relationship with Christ has to supersede every other worldly relationship we have, even the best ones, even the most cherished ones. The glory of God and the cross of Christ must come first before all else. And so this commitment to the Lord is an example for us, that we must be committed to the glory of God before any relationship. And that's going to work itself out in all kinds of practical and sometimes, many times, hard ways with relationships that we have with people whom we love. I know this from experience. But we have to, we must, if we want to follow Christ, be committed to him before any other worldly relationship. But second... This passage is a picture of what will happen when Jesus returns. Moses came down off the mountain. And the people had become impatient with him, right? Remember? They'd become impatient. And so they turned away from God. And when Moses came down, what did he find the people doing? They found the people worshiping another false god. He found the people reveling in their sin. Well, brothers and sisters, one day Jesus will come down. One day Jesus will come down. And as Peter said, many have convinced themselves that he will never come back. But he will. 
And what will he find us doing when he returns? What will Jesus find us doing when he comes down? Who will be found to be on the Lord's side when Jesus returns? Those who are on the Lord's side will be spared. Those who are not on the Lord's side will not be spared. They will be taken away to eternal death. Who will be found to be on the Lord's side? This scene is a picture of what will happen on the day Christ returns. What will he find us doing? Jesus told a parable in his life, in his teachings. He told a parable in Matthew 24, verse 45, and I want to read it to you. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day where he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him to pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice the connection. That servant begins to say, My master's delayed. He's not coming anytime soon. I've got plenty of time. But the master comes at an hour he did not expect. Will Jesus find servants who are on the Lord's side when he returns? Or will he find you indulging in sin, in idolatry, because you convinced yourself that you had plenty of time left? Or perhaps because you convinced yourself that he was never returning at all? I warn you, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, and those whom I cannot, especially those whom I cannot yet call my brothers and sisters, do not believe this lie that you have plenty of time. Just because you've lived this long and Jesus hasn't come back yet. For he will come at an hour when we least expect him. He will come at a time like a thief in the night, the Bible says. And he is coming soon. Are you ready for when he comes? What will he find you doing when he comes? Will he find that you are on the Lord's side? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you turned it over and pledged your allegiance to him and come to God for mercy and for forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ? If not, why are you waiting? Why are you taking that dreadful chance? Please do so before it is too late. We're going to spend some time right now in silent prayer, responding to the Lord and what he has laid on our hearts through his word. We ask that everyone spend this time responding in prayer to God in your hearts and kind of, if you will, do business with the Lord as a response to his word. After you do, we will come back together and have an invitation time where those who need to respond to God's word in a public manner can do so. But right now, let's pray individually.